this is a time for um, some uh, Dharma conversation. So uh, if there's any particular questions that have arisen from what I had to say or related areas, then uh, please don't be shy. We have another microphone, I hope. Hmm? Okay, great. So uh, if uh, anyone has anything they'd like to ask about, then please uh, ask away. But do if you can wait for the microphone to arrive so then we can record the questions as well as the answers. Ajahn, thank you very much for giving all those advice. I find it a little bit difficult to practice what you preach today in lay life. Uh, Join reason, the club. Uh, reason is, now today, I have come here, I have got an image in my mind, Ajahn Amaro explains Dhamma really well. That's the image I have got in my mind. That's the reason why I came here today. But if I had let go that image from my mind, maybe I have misunderstood you, but you have told me, I wouldn't have come here today. So can you please advise how to practice this in the lay life, in day to day. Thank you. Good, yeah, good question. Well, le uh, letting go, see, it doesn't mean throwing away. So if I'm holding this with a tight grip, then I'm holding on to that idea. Like, yeah, Ajahn Amaro gives really good Dhamma talks. I've got to go to Amravati. Then that's a fix. You're creating it in your mind as a fixed thing, and there's a set of expectations. So if I don't show up because I'm ill or uh, or there's a, you're stuck on the road and you can't get out of the traffic, or there's a flood, uh, then um, that degree of clinging will cause suffering in you. Or if I give a really boring Dhamma talk, you think, well, that's totally stupid, and he was completely wrong about everything. And uh, so then that, that, that clinging and expectation uh, creates suffering. But letting go doesn't mean you know, throwing that away or putting, um, putting it down. It doesn't mean, okay, that's just a thought in my mind, therefore don't go. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a difference between clinging with, a, with tension and just holding. So you think, well, I know, I've got the, the idea, well, there's a Dhamma talk listed at Amravati, I'll get in the car and see what happens. <laughs> and maybe Ajahn Amra will be there, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll give a good talk, maybe he won't. Maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't. But let's just see. So then you're still following that that direction, you're following that intention, but there's no clinging there. So that, uh, so that would be, uh, Ajahn Chah would often use that same example, or that speaking exactly that way, saying it's the difference between clinging and holding. So when you hold something, you, you pick it up, you carry out a task, you, you give it your full attention, and when it's over, then you, know, you put it down. You're not still carrying it around. So that's... Uh, Learning how to to act and to 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 engage, but without without attachment, without without clinging, and in in many respects, that's a, a huge piece of of the path, is learning how to use intention, speech, action, effort, because there's a lot of doing there, right? And learning how to apply you know, intention, uh, speech, action, and, and effort without uh, creating a self around them. You know, if every action in, involved creating a sense of self, then right effort would be impossible. <laughs> right action would be impossible, right? So they couldn't, they couldn't be a part of the Eightfold Path. But because right action, there can be action that's not supporting self-view, that's not supporting 
delusion and alienation. So when we talk about right action, right livelihood, similarly, it's uh, they're all learning that that skill of, of engaging, acting, also decision making, but without that being based on on self view, rather than I'm deciding to do this and I don't, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that uh, we we very easily feel that decisions, choices that we make are are self based, but choices can be made without any sense of self being involved at all. Yeah. The the Buddha did a lot of choosing, <laughs> a lot of deciding. He you know he gave teachings for forty five years. He had to choose a lot of words <laughs> to use. He had to choose the ways to teach particular people. He established the Sangha, the monks order, the nuns order. He made a lot of decisions and, and that but all of that that um that effort that he made, the the actions, the words, the uh, all of that, that was not based on 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 an ego, on on self view, or on a, a uh, um that uh those qualities of, of Sakaya Diti. So it's important to to contemplate those things. If if it was if it was not possible to act without attachment, then we'd be really stuck. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's not a matter of, it's not, it's not that um, letting go of those projections or those um, uh, self creations means don't act, because in a way, not acting is a, is still a kind of acting. You're choosing to. to I'm doing nothing. You know, I'm. Uh, I'm not engaging. <laughs> the I am is still there, even though there's sort of, sort of sitting in an armchair. I'm doing nothing. I'm being nobody. You know, <laughs> I'm being Buddhist. You know? And uh, I'm not being anywhere. Not not being anyone. Not going anywhere. And that's the kind of wrong grasping of the of the teaching. And if we just using the example of the Buddha's life, he did he did a lot of traveling, a lot of uh, engaging with other people. Surrounded by uh, activity and people, and establishing monasteries, giving teachings, you know, creating the order of monks and nuns, establishing the whole you know, thousands and thousands of rules of the the Vinaya discipline. That was he was a he was a, a did a substantial amount of management. You know, <laughs> he uh, he uh, established and managed the the life of the sangha for forty five years. So that uh, that. Uh, means that we we need to learn how to uh, to speak and to act, to uh, make choices based on mindfulness and wisdom, rather than based on, on uh, rather than that being taken over by I want, I like, I don't like, uh, and I'm doing, I'm not doing. But uh, the more we develop the meditation, that then uh, insight practice helps us to see. The way that the I, the what's called the eye making and mind making habit, sort of steps in and takes over. Well, ahankara means uh, made of I am, like the eye making and mind making habit. So, but when that is let go of, and we we use insight meditation to 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 recognize those habits of self view, then we realize, oh, they can just be walking, but without me walking. <laughs> There's, there's walking going on, there's talking going on, there's words being chosen, but without a, a me being established that's, that's doing the talking. That's why we call it a Dhamma talk, because ideally it's, it's not me talking. 
but the uh, ideally <laughs> that the speaker is getting out of the way and just letting the Dhamma speak. So that when we, we do the chant the Namutasa at the beginning, then the, the next words we say are Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami. So I, I pay respects to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And uh, to, so that there's a, a deliberate sort of stepping out of the way of the, the person. And traditionally, the, uh, and I think they still do in Burma, you, uh, the uh, monastic would give a Dhamma talk from behind a fan. It holds a fan so it covers their face. So it's like it's not the it's not the person speaking here. <laughs> Ideally, it's just the voice of the Dhamma. I'm not trying to make any sort of spectacular claims. I'm just saying, you know, in a perfect world, that's the way it, it it operates. Yes, Javier. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for confusing us even further. <laughs> My question is uh, very Before simple. Before you go on, uh, this is a bookmark from, um, this is written in, in Lumpur Sumedha's own hand. It was in this copy of the Sutta Nipata. So speaking of confusing, so, um, it's a quote from a Muslim poet called Rumi. And it says, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. Cleverness is mere opinion. Bewilderment, bewilderment is intuition. So carry on. <laughs> oh, let me see. Okay. My question is, um, do we cling on mental and emotional uh, phenomena because we are attached to it? Because um, we, ex we don't know their impermanence or both? Both, the short answer. We take the, the impermanent to be permanent. We take the not self to be self, and we take the unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. You missed out that one. <laughs> so that, that's in a way the, the, the sort of snapshot of ignorance. Like when the mind is not awake, that's what we do. That we, uh, we make those three basic mistakes. And so that's why the, the Buddha established his wisdom teachings around anicca dukkha anatta, saying that, no, this thing that you take to be satisfying, if you dig a little deeper, it, it, it can't satisfy. If you, this thing that you think is yours, if you dig a little bit deeper, you, you realize that ownership is impossible. This thing that uh, you think is, is permanent and real and solid, if you look a little closer, you realize, no, no, it, it came together and it has to fall apart. So it's not, it's not solid, it's not permanent. So that, that uh, those are the, the basic um, delusions that living beings live with and that because of continually uh, hoping or expecting the the impermanent to be permanent and the satisfactory to be uh, and the unsatisfactory to be satisfactory and so on that we are continually meeting with disappointment like oh no how could that, how could that happen you know <laughs> uh, but uh, that's a in a way it's, it's a painfully simple law it's like Ajahn Chah he was very good at these Dharmic one-liners. So if you seek for security in that which is insecure, you have to be disappointed. So it's an investment strategy. You know? Thank you.
another question. Sure. Uh, now, you mentioned about this. Uh, as a novice, before I do my meditation, I say, may I be well and happy. May all beings be well and happy. Now, mention, you mentioned that, saying that this, I may, may have misunderstood you. Okay. It's no use because it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, can you please explain? Because I do that, before I do the meditation, I do that one. Isn't it unbounded loving kindness to say that may all beings be well and happy? No, I, well, I, I don't mean it's completely useless. But if, uh, for, for many people, the, the, the whole practice of metta becomes just repeating those words. And as, uh, as Ajahn Sumedha would often say, it's just repeating, you, know, you could teach a parrot to say, may I be happy, may all beings be happy. And that if, our, if all we're doing is repeating the words and we're not taking it any deeper, then it, it's, it is kind of useless. But if we, if we use the words as, a, as an entry point and, then, and we use it to, as a way of exploring what the, the actuality of, of loving kindness is, you say, well, I remember that talk that Ajahn Amaro gave and he was talking all about loving kindness you know, and, and its relationship to wisdom. And loving kindness being non-possessive or non-personal. Well, how does that work? Yeah, how can it, if, if I'm saying, uh, may I be happy, may all beings be happy, uh, if all dhammas are not self, then who is it sending matter to who? Or to whom? <laughs> oh, and so then it, it opens up some questions. It opens up uh, uh, dhamma vijaya, the investigation of experience and, and reality. So that I wouldn't say those, those statements are useless, but it's important that they, uh, you, you're using them in a, a reflective way. That you're, that's like an, an application of wisdom in there as well. And that along with um, that, uh, <clears throat> the saying, yeah, may, may I be happy, may all beings be happy, um, then the, you know, you, in a sense you're holding it within the context of wisdom, rather like that, the quotation from the Vajra Sutra, that sort of, insofar as there is a being here, may, it be, you know, may this being be happy. <laughs> I, know that a, I know there's no being here, but, but the, the, just like you know, quoting the Vajra Sutra, living beings, living beings, there are no living beings, that's why we call them living beings. It's like maintaining those, that, the, that, that uh, dual uh, perception of reality, that yes, there is this life, I am Ajahn Amro, you know, I'm, this is who I am, that's the name on my birth certificate. Uh, well, actually she's not. <laughs> it's the name on my passport. But uh, that... Uh, Conventionally speaking, that's who I am. But when I look and try and find where and what an Ajahn Amro is, there isn't anything here. You know, you can't, there's no thing that's definable. So, yes, uh, there is a living being, and no, there is no living being. And so that, rather like I was saying about uh, Ajahn Chah's comment about Dhamma and Vinaya, it's like, everything matters, nothing matters. Uh, the Dhamma is all about letting go, and the Vinaya is all about holding on. So it's... Uh, uh, when we practice metta, then it's important to try and cultivate that wisdom aspect of it as well. That there, there are no beings here, there are no beings there, but may all beings be happy. <laughs> and so to the rational mind, it's like, well, are there beings or are there not beings? You know, is there someone here or is there not? <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a both and. and so it can be perplexing or, or bewildering to the thinking mind, but it's like Rumi put it, you know, bewilderment is the gateway to intuition. Yeah. And, that ra and having everything figured out on a rational plane usually means that we've trimmed out a lot of reality. 
and that we are the mind that thinks either or. And that might just sound like very woolly thinking <laughs> and fuzziness, but uh, it's um, you know the experience of it when you when you uh, work with it in that way, you you and you get a feeling for that that middle way of yes it's true, but yes it's not true. Like saying today is Sunday, yes it's Sunday, but no it's not. Yeah, because. Uh, before the seven-day week was invented, or before you know the 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 European calendar, you say, "Well, this is the full moon day." But uh, we, we, you know, because of the way that the moon spins around the Earth, but a few billion, a couple of billion years ago, there wasn't a moon; <laughs> there weren't any living beings on the planet. So, was it a Sunday? You know, in seven-day seven-day lots from uh, from here back into the ancient past, before we even had a moon, <laughs> was it a full moon day? Yeah, so that uh, we say yes, it's Sunday, but no, it's not. Yeah, from the position of the human society living on the surface of the Earth, we say this particular patch of twenty-four, what we call hours, we call this this patch Sunday. In New Zealand, it's already Monday, <laughs> right? So, is it Sunday or Monday? Yeah. So we we live with these things all the time. But we don't consider them. So in New Zealand, at this very moment, straight down through the floor in New Zealand, but, and they're sitting with their feet, you know, <laughs> foot to foot with you. <laughs> the, the Kiwis are down there, and it's Monday down there, and it's Sunday up here, same planet. So is it Sunday or Monday? And are you sitting upright, or are they? Are they? Are they? Are they on their heads, or are they sitting upright and you're on your head? Yeah, which way is up? If you're in New Zealand, up is down there. So these are simple ways of, of reflecting that, oh, my perception of things is a convenient fiction. For the purposes of living in England, and what I'm going to do with this particular patch of time, we call this Sunday. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, two o'clock, there's a talk at Amarati. But the mind that remembers that's a convenient fiction, then you're able to use that fiction it's like a willing suspension of disbelief, as they call it. Like, yes, I know there isn't really a Sunday, but <laughs> but if I get in the car and drive in this direction and show up at this particular place, there'll be a talk which might be useful. And so, we, uh, you're not taking it as an absolute reality, but you're recognizing that those, the application of those conventions can have genuine and real effects, and uh, liberating effects. That one of the, the Buddha's statements I find very significant, he said, he says there's two kinds of miracle. There's the miracle of psychic power, like reading people's minds or flying through the air or seeing into past lives and such like. There's the miracle of psychic power and there's the miracle of in instruction. And of these two, the miracle of instruction is the superior. So that people can hear the Dhamma teachings and they can understand those words and then through that understanding, then their, their heart can be liberated. That's a miracle. Because yeah. words are just sounds, they're just patterns of consciousness. But yet, the actuality is that, that we can hear things and then the quality of understanding can arise and the heart can be genuinely liberated. So the Buddha said, that's a more impressive a miracle than people flying through the air or you know, going into uh, 
looking into past lives and uh, and uh, reading other people's minds and such. That uh, is far more amazing and wonderful, useful, <laughs> that we can hear a teaching and that we can be liberated from it. Sometimes you can even be you can be liberated hearing your own teachings. So one monk was enlightened hearing his own Dhamma talk. Yes, the one over there. Um, Arjan, my question today is um, in the context of recent loss of um, loved ones, close family, etc. Um, <clears throat> I'm finding in my practice a good way up to a point is to bring them to mind as they were. Use techniques such as the meta practice and... Um, just contemplating calming the mind and the sense of accompanying and being with. Uh, but what I'm coming up against is I've also got this sense of the teachings about those that have passed on, how to try to relate to them other than in their former worldly form. You know, there was a sense of consciousness moving on, perhaps other things you might like to say about that. And, and what you've found to be the most effective way with the intention of... Um, in a sense, wishing them or their consciousness well on some forward journey into perhaps next life. And I think it is this that I'm looking for further clarity or further suggestion how best to be in a form of communication through our practices that we have available to us. Yeah, good question. Well, what I found um, is, uh, like for my parents, they both died. My father, uh, uh, twenty, about twenty years ago. My mother, about ten years ago. And um, and so, uh, looking at pictures of them when they were children, because I relate to them as very much grown-ups. They were both um, in their late thirties. I think my father was forty-two or so when I was born. So they were always old, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, and so then you, you relate to, and then they're in the role of parent, and you're in the role of child. But to, to relate to them in terms of being to being, then looking at pictures of them when they were little children, uh, what pictures that, that, that I have, and just seeing, oh, that, well, there was a time when my mum was a little girl. Here she is, you know, before she wore glasses, and here's my dad in, in short trousers and long hair, you know, back in Edwardian England. Yeah, he was born in 1913, so he, um, and so then he's not in the role of my dad. He's three years old, in his cute little shorts and his, and his sort of shoulder-length hair, and um, and so in a sense, seeing well, what what I'm, what's there in that picture? Is that any less of a being than my dad, who was uh, you know, an older man? You know, I was I always knew him as a middle-aged or older man, and and then the intuition is well, no, of course it's just it's the same being. It's just at that at that particular time, it was just in a different uh, different vehicle. It was just it was a three-year-old body with its three-year-old perceptions, but how could it really be substantially different? 
and then contemplating that the the lifespan going through I mean three years old, thirteen years old, twenty years old, thirty years old and and then reflecting on the different events of say my father's life, my mother's life and and then seeing how when you were the same age, like when they're the age that you are now, and how you know you would relate to them if they were your friends, they were your own peers and contemporaries. Um and so in a sense just sort of shuffling the pack you know uh, uh just shifting things around so that you you know you're 50 something or 60 something and then looking at your your dad as a little boy and say well well i i'm the old one now and this is the young one even though it's just using your imagination then uh, you i find that just simple things like that help to shift the perception of that the parent is always older or mature or wiser or conditioned in certain ways but seeing that they're them just as another being to being also um you know the when people bring because we do we do a, a lot of well, there's a, a large range of people that come here you know from people who are very very old to people who are newly born and i like to make a point of not relating differently to the, the the ones who are a month old and the ones who are 90 years old you know and everything in between and the, i think sometimes the parents are a bit surprised when i start talking to their their you know their their baby who's only like a month old or 6 months old like but i i'll talk to them you know as if they were a regular human being that you know you can't they can't understand the words but i'll always make a point of speaking to them as and i'll say something like well welcome to the world you know good luck <laughs> This is the easy bit, you know. <laughs> Enjoy this while you can. And I think that I suspect a few of the parents think this monk's really weird, you know. But uh, I like to do it because it's in a way I like to to say even though this this being has only been in the world, you know, for a month or you know, uh, six months or whatever, how could they be any less real or le less of a person than their grandparent, you know, the grandfather, the grandmother, really? You know, because perhaps they were a granddad, you know, three months ago, <laughs> and that they just sort of popped into this life, uh, having just finished another one. So the uh, that way of just not being taken in by the the surface features or the typecasting of people according to their age or their gender or their nationality, but just r making a a point of relating being to being. And then, you know, in terms of uh, of helping other beings who pass on to other lives, just to to um, just bring them to mind, you know, and uh, to to say that uh, those kind of reflections of or whatever state of being they might be in, whether they are uh, a um, back in the human world or they're in some deva world or some other world, they, you know, wherever they might be, or in between worlds, you know, whatever state of being they might be. Uh, that I send forth my good wishes and uh, gratitude and um, my uh, you know, loving kindness and, uh, and may and may whatever supportive forces are available that can help them in their present condition. Uh, may those uh, to, to what extent my wishes can have an effect. May they may those uh, forces gather around and help them. Yeah, and that's uh, and let's leave it at that. Yeah, but it, you know, sometimes people say the uh, uh, also the meta practice or the sharing of blessings.
people think of that as a kind of superstition, but it's, it's funnily enough, it's one of the, the Buddhist customs that does actually have a basis in the suttas, the, the sharing of, of merit. Um, there, there, there is a, it's not just a folk belief, but it's also established in the, in the Dhamma teachings. And so that, uh, that way of being able to consciously share good karma that you create with others in different realms is, is, is something that's definitely possible. I would say. Uh, yes. Thanks. Thanks for the uh, discussion. Um, just uh, um, while on the subject of perception and personas, that we discussed uh, most of this evening. Um, one thing, I, how I like look at perception is the way we uh, construct an image of the person uh, based on what you know about them, like you, uh, like you preached earlier. At the same time, there is the interesting co uh, concept of intuition, which uh, how I feel is uh, like it's what we more. Uh, informally referred to as the gut feeling, mm -hmm. um, just trying to understand where, where that comes from, because in the modern world, I think we're all very logical and try to create <laughs> these perceptions or personas of people mm -hmm. uh, by how you understand them. But at the same time, there's also the gut feeling and things, uh, intuition, which mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be very logical. And <laughs> just trying to understand, is that something that essentially comes from like a past life as you just uh, touched on briefly or is that something that really can't be explained with logic at all oh there's, there's lots of explanations i mean it, it's a bit of a broad term intuition is a bit of a broad term but uh it's a sense of knowing and i think that as human beings we all have that to a certain extent a lot of the time and um even people who are sort of hyper-rationalist act based on intuition, you know, quite, uh, quite regularly, and that things are not, we don't calculate our way to certain decisions, but uh, people go on gut feeling a lot. I think, uh, was it Warren Buffett, who's one of the most uh, um, successful financial operators in the world, and they, people are trying to figure out, what's your system, what's your algorithm? And he says, I just, my gut, you know, my, I just go on gut feeling. But you're like playing with hundreds of millions of dollars, and you know, how can you go on gut feeling? Well, yeah. And so that uh, uh, there's a there's a way that our intelligence is much more comprehensive than we uh, we think or we realize. And my my feeling and sort of experience over the years is that we are attuned to reality in the way that nature works far more extensively than we realize. We pick up on each other, we pick up on situations uh, far more. And I, I don't pretend to know exactly how, but um, you can think of it in terms of, of um, the fact that we are sharing a life together or that we're part of the same ecosystem, but somehow we, uh, we do seem to pick up on things that are apparently outside of our, our ken. I'm not talking about sort of um, uh, uh, so particularly extreme things, but just uh, there's ways that we, we have feelings, like just the sense of being watched. 
when you have the feeling of someone's looking at me. And often we're right. You know, that the, the, there's this, oh, I feel I'm being watched, or I'm being, I'm being looked at. And the people, I mean, psycholo- hard-edged psych- you know, statistical psychologists have done experiments on this. And, and lo and behold, they find out, yeah, there's no reason why you should know, but people can tell that they're being watched from, from when, by someone they, they can't even see. And they, they, somebody knows. Like, well, how the heck can you know that? So there's, there's ways, I mean, we could say in terms of our minds overlap or we affect each other. I think it's just a lot to do with like subliminal effects. And that we are, we think of ourselves as sort of contained in this little body and that our mind is kind of in this, this little box up top. Um, but I, I, I feel that we, we overlap a lot, a lot more than we realize. And we pick up on what's going on around us. Um, over a much larger geographical area than we would necessarily suspect. I don't have any um, sort of scientific basis for that, but just seeing that that's what happens a lot you know, in, in human life and that we, we do pick up on people's attitudes or like the, the feeling of being stared at or, or, or all these many experiments they've done about dogs knowing when the, the owners are coming home. There's this... Um, uh, a, uh, a researcher called Jeffrey Musayev Masson, who was a, he was a uh, um, psychoanalyst actually before. <laughs> he was a Sanskritist first, then he was a psychoanalyst, and now he's gone into uh, animal psychology. But he's an interesting researcher, and he's done his whole series of studies on on when you know the 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 owner uh, or the, the 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 human partner is at the office, sort of saying, "Okay, time to go home." They start putting their pens away. And then at that moment, the dog jumps, you know, the, the camera in the, in the home, <laughs> the camera in the office. And at that moment, as he looks at his watch and starts putting his pens away, the dog, you know, jumps off the sofa and goes over to the door. Yeah. And, I mean, not, this is not kind of YouTube science. I mean, this is the actual sort of scientific papers with corroborated data and, you know, all of that. So there, there are things that, that function in our world that you can't really explain. And uh, intuition, and intuitive wisdom, it's uh, Ajahn Sumedha used to use the term intuitive wisdom as a, a, a way of um, translating sati sampajanya or mindfulness and clear comprehension, which is a, which is a fairly unusual usage of the term. But uh, in a way, I think it's quite um, uh, uh, it's quite appropriate because it's not, it's sort of mindfulness, but mindfulness that takes in the whole context of experience. And some of that experience might be conscious and some of it might be unconscious, like the feeling of being stared at. Like that uh, you might not um, be able to pin that, you know, pin that down, but it's just a feeling that's, that's there. But it's because you're opening up your, your senses to the whole situation. Um, the, so intuitive wisdom was the term that he used for that because it, there is that non-rational element in it. And also mindfulness, not as a sort of deliberate, um, almost mechanical act of paying attention to each activity, but a a mindfulness, a sort of mindfulness, you know, the mind full, uh, full of the present moment and taking in all its attributes. And so when we we talk about things like psychic powers in in Buddhist tradition, understand the more that someone's mind is really uncluttered and really focused, then the more they pick up on you know, all the other minds that they're overlapping with, or the, the, you know, the, the shared mind, if you like. So that they, they say, oh, he can read my mind, or he knows what's going on in my mind. 
but it's because of uh, someone whose mind is so quiet and so focused on the present, they're not creating any static. <laughs> so they can pick up on the, the other things in the, the, the general field of awareness. So it is, it's, a, it's like a mindfulness of the present immediate experience and the context within which he's experiencing. And that, you, 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 know, you would call it having psychic powers, being able to read people's minds. But in, in essence, it's just, if, if you stop making a lot of noise, <laughs> you start to hear what's going on around you. Like if I shut up, and I, we just sort of sit here quietly, we'll, we'll hear each other, breathing, shifting in the chair, the kind of rustle of the, the wind in the trees. We start to notice all of that, because the main noise has gone quiet, so we notice everything else that's going on around. And the, uh, I mean, I have a scientific background, but um, I've always been quite comfortable with non-rational aspects of experience as well, and the things you, you can't explain. As uh, Shakespeare put it in Hamlet, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. That uh, there's always going to be more things than we can explain, and even when you talk to scientists, you know, that they, the, the or the quantum uh, mechanics. <laughs> If they like Richard Feynman, who's a, like a Nobel Prize winning physicist, said, anyone who tells you that they understand quantum mechanics is lying. <laughs> nobody really understands it, even though they can use it, but really understanding what it is and how it works, it's, it's mind-boggling. So I feel that, that one of the great, uh, the great gifts of Buddha Dhamma, and what is in a way unique, is that the Buddha points to the fact that, yes, there is an incalculable amount of stuff that we could know. And that there's whole levels and layers of reality that are out of our usual ken. But it doesn't really matter. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to have an explanation for everything. And so part of his genius, I feel, was that he didn't try to explain everything in the universe. At least in the Theravada canon, in the northern Buddhist world, there's a lot more... Of hyper, hyper uh, detailed explanations. But uh, he deliberately, like the, uh, the teaching of the, the handful of leaves, he realized there's, un, there's an incalculable amount of stuff that you could know, but it doesn't really help. And so he, had, he used the symbol of the handful of leaves. He picked up the leaves from the forest floor and said, what is greater, the number of leaves in my hand or the number of leaves on the trees in this, uh, this, the forest in Kosambi? And they said, well... Venerable Sir, the number of leaves in your hand is very, very small, but the number of leaves in the forest is very, very great. And he said, so too, what I understand, what I know, is comparable to the leaves in the forest. What I teach you is comparable to the leaves in my hand. You know, and why, do I, why do I not teach you everything that I know? Because most of what I know is not conducive to wisdom. It's not conducive to liberation. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to... to um, to uh, psychological integration, it doesn't lead to liberation. That's why I don't teach it. Why and what, what I what I uh, what have I taught you? I've taught you this is dukkha. This is dissatisfaction. This is its cause. This is its cessation. This is the way leading to its cessation. That's what I've taught you. Why have I taught it to you? Because <laughs> that's what leads to peace. That's what leads to liberation. That's what leads to kind of a mental psychological integration and uh, uh, freedom.
That's why I've taught it to you. So he was very conscious of not trying to explain everything. And pe many people have felt he was very stingy in that respect. Like he kind of he knew all that stuff, so why didn't he talk about it? You know, all these kind of interesting things about different you know different realms and layers of reality. Uh, he didn't bother because he had the insight. You don't have to be able to write equations for what's going on in every musical instrument in the orchestra. You know, even to to describe the vibration of air inside a kettle drum. You know, by mathematical formula, that would take you the rest of your life to to describe exactly what every little you know um, bit of of uh, of, uh, of uh, the air inside a drum is doing, or the vibration in a violin string, or what the wood in the violin is doing. You could spend thousands of people lifetimes writing equations, but it doesn't really get you very far. So what he he realized is the point is recognizing when you're in tune and when you're out of tune. And if you're out of tune, <laughs> you adjust to get in tune. If you're off pitch, if you're off beat, you know, then you know you're off beat. Okay, this is dukkha. We're out of harmony. I'm going too fast. I need to slow down. I'm going too slow. I need to speed up. I'm too sharp. I'm too flat. So that dukkha, that's dissatisfaction. That's all you need to know. The rest, exactly what's going on in the rest of the orchestra, what the, what the flutes are doing and the trombones and the violins, don't worry about it. <laughs> They're looking after their piece. You just concentrate on your instrument and listen. Are you in tune or are you not in tune? Are you on, are you on the beat or are you not on the beat? And is there dukkha or is there not dukkha? If there's dukkha, that means you need to adjust. If there's no dukkha, if you're in harmony, then enjoy it. <laughs> Leave it alone. So that's all you need to know. The rest is gravy, yeah? is extra. And so that, uh, um, the realm of intuition, uh, kind of all the stuff that it's sort of around the edges and informing our life that we don't quite understand, we don't quite, we can't really explain, but yet it has its effect. It's like what you're picking up from the rest of the orchestra. It's like it doesn't really matter that much. That the the more that we're just able to focus on on dukkha, on see where we're out of tune, and then to let ourselves adjust, that's the only thing that really matters. And that, that I feel is this brilliance of the Buddha's teaching that uh, you don't have to have. Uh, the perfect rational explanation of where all beings came from, or you know where it's all going in the future, or what hap is happening in different levels of reality, or you know what's the the uh, the, the true nature of of uh, ultimate uh, ultimate reality. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> all you need to know is: are you, are you in tune? You're not in tune. If you're not in tune, then adjust. If you're in tune, then just enjoy that uh, that experience. And uh, that's all. That's all that's really needed. And that uh, when intuition arises, or we feel that sense of connection to a larger whole, or we pick things up, then the temptation might be, well, well how does that? Where's that coming from? Or how do I explain that? Or, or what does that mean? And my my rule of thumb with those kind of things is, if there's an immediate sense of, oh, I know where that comes from, or I get a. a then you can usually trust it, you know, the, the, that you see a sense of a connection or, or why a particular mood has arisen or why there's a particular feeling. And I think, oh, where does that come from? And if, so, if there's an immediate sort of, um, uh, understanding that sort of pops into the mind, then you can usually trust it. But nine times out of ten, what arises is, I don't know, <laughs> or who knows. And then the best thing is just leave it alone rather than trying to fill it up with a belief or a worry or a an idea.
just okay well it's just mystery just leave it alone no need to have that um everything accounted for okay so i think uh the clock has gone around to five past four so we'll leave it there for the afternoon so thank you for your good questions and uh your attention and uh, i'll be uh, going into a solo retreat for the next couple of weeks so others will be looking after the next um sunday talks for the a little while so go well <laughs>